This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Titanic was a box office juggernaut 25 years ago, and everything about it was huge, including its budget, its runtime, soundtrack, and accolades. It catapulted Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet into a whole new stratosphere of fame, and the parodies were seemingly endless. Titanic's massive success and ubiquity have made it easy to dismiss the movie as a cheesy romance only teenage girls could love. The film recently returned to theaters, but we've got some distance from Leomania and King of the World jokes. So how does James Cameron's epic hold up all these years later? I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Aisha Harris. And near, far, wherever you are, we're revisiting our episode about Titanic on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Joining us today is Vulture TV critic Roxana Haddadi. Welcome back, Roxana. Thank you. Thank you. And also joining us is writer Chris Klemek. Welcome back to you too, Chris. Thank you. I'm so excited to discuss Jim Cameron's second best seafaring disaster <laughs> romance with you all. All right. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so in case you haven't seen Titanic, Kate Winslet plays the upper class Rose. She boards the Titanic with her mother, Ruth, and her pompous older fiance, Cal, played by Francis Fisher and Billy Zane, respectively. Also aboard ship is Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack Dawson, a poor drifter who manages to snag a third-class ticket in a poker game. Now, Rose and Jack meet and strike up a not-so-secret romance despite their class differences and Cal's many attempts to run interference. And then, of course, the ship strikes an iceberg. Gloria Stewart plays Rose in the present day. She recounts her experience to a treasure hunter played by Bill Paxton named Brock Lovett. He's leading an expedition of the ship's wreckage and is searching for a famous jewel known as the Heart of the Ocean. James Cameron wrote and directed the film, and here are a few stats in case you've forgotten just how big a deal this movie was at the time. It was huge, as we've already said. It became the first movie to cross the $1 billion mark in box office. It was the number one movie for 15 weeks in a row, and it was nominated for 14 Academy Awards and took home 11. At the time, it tied with Ben-Hur for most wins for a single film. So, obviously... This was a big deal 25 years ago. But how do we feel about it now? Roxana, let's start with you. This movie still rules, like, in every way that a movie (laughs) can rule. I think the first time I saw it, I was actually in Iran and watched it on a bootleg VHS. Because the international appeal of this movie was huge. It was, as you said, rightly everywhere. And I think it still holds up in some very impressive ways. I think... The practical effects are still amazing and so impressive, especially as the industry has moved more and more toward CGI. 
So I think there's a practical, tactile feel to the movie that still resonates. And I still love this romance. I still love Leo and Kate Winslet together and this very sort of expected two people from different sides of the track fall in love, but they do it so compellingly. (laughs) Don't presume to tell me what I will and will not do. You don't know me. Well, you would have done it already. You're distracting me. Go away. I can't. I'm involved now. You let go and I'm going to have to jump in there after you. This is still a movie that I hold very dear to me, but I don't know what everyone else thinks. <laughs> well, at the time, just off of reading a few articles from when the movie came out, it sounded like so much of the draw was that love story. Like, yes, there was the spectacle, but a lot of people were also going back repeatedly to the theater to watch this three hour and 15 minute movie <laughs> because of the connection that Winslet and DiCaprio have on screen. So I concur. I, I have other thoughts on that, but I understand that feeling very, very well. Chris. Our noted James Cameron apologist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know who who was not a teenage girl in 1997 was me, and I was there on on opening night, December 19th, right before Christmas. Uh, just to give you a timestamp, I got my tickets via movie phone, not moviephone.com, and I went back I think two more times, bringing up my collective investment to 582 minutes. And I was there because you know in 1997, Jim Cameron was my favorite. Filmmaker, I had to sneak in because I wasn't quite old enough for opening night of Terminator Two, and then and True Lies, and you know a few years after that. But I think the thing that is hard to recall now, twenty five years later, is what a swerve this was. I mean, in terms of a thematic swerve, like all of the the stories that you know we in our prep doc, we had some of the reporting from the time about how this was going to be Cleopatra, this was going to be Heaven's Gate, this was going to sink Twentieth Century Fox, Waterworld, yeah, 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 exactly, you know. And of course, this is my favorite filmmaker. I'm reading these updates on Ain't It Cool News because again, 1997, and I'm like, wow, what's going to happen? And also, this is a romance. But I was totally swept away by it too, you know. And I, and I mean, I, I had not seen the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet at that time. I did know Kate Winslet from uh, Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson movie. But I mean, they were not making the kinds of movies that I was really going crazy for at that time. This really seemed to me then and now this kind of a perfect marriage between a, a truly ambitious, technologically visionary experiment and just a shameless, you know, kind of cornball old Hollywood sweeping epic. I I did have to watch this again because this is not one of the Cameron movies that I know every shot of, but I loved it. I mean, I think this movie absolutely deserves its reputation. I mean, yeah, everyone knows when it comes to dialogue, Jim Cameron is not an old coward, but screenwriting is way more than dialogue. William Goldman, who's got a couple of Oscars for screenwriting when he was writing his premier magazine roundup of all the Oscar winners at the end of the year was like, I totally defend this movie's screenwriting nomination because screenwriting is structured. Dialogue is the least important thing. So yeah, there's some how but so what? I think this movie is great. I think it absolutely deserves its legacy. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Linda, how about you? I was not a teenage girl, but I was a woman who loved romantic movies. And for me, I have such a strong memory of how much I loved this movie when I saw it. I am pretty sure I did go back and see it a couple more times. I was thrilled by the scale of it, by the beauty of it. And yeah, by the fact that it was this big, big, big story. And I think one thing that it helps to remember is that in addition to what Chris said, which is that this was a swerve for Cameron, this was also not a kind of movie that they were making a ton of at the time. This was a big time for like cop movies and action movies. It was a big time for kind of 
comedy dudes like Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler and that kind of thing. Just to support what Linda was saying about what studios were in the business of in 1997, this movie was, of course, supposed to come out Independence Day weekend, 97, and it was six months late. So that left Fox with their other boat movie that summer, Speed 2 Cruise Control. Yes, Mm. absolutely. (laughs) So these like big sweeping romantic epics were not that much of a thing then. You know, you had had The English Patient and you had had out of Africa long before that and you would but you would later have stuff like Pearl Harbor but those things hadn't happened yet. And so my reaction to rewatching this has been so colored by the fact that I am in the middle of reading Isaac Butler's book The Method oh, that's great. which is about method acting but it's about the transformation of acting and film in the middle of the 20th century and kind of how American filmmakers and audiences got less into certain kinds of things and more into other kinds of things. That is a spectacularly interesting lens through which to watch one single performance in this movie. It is Billy Zane as Cal. I love him so much. (laughs) Completely unacceptable. What made you think that you could put your hands on my fiance? Look at me, you filth. Cal. What do you think you were doing? Cal, stop. It was an accident. It is so easy to look at that performance and say, that's such bad, corny acting. I think of it as a silent film performance. It's just different acting, right? Mm -hmm. He's not trying to be Brando. He's not trying to do naturalistic, like, every man acting. (laughs) He's a type. And that is what acting used to be before people decided it should be super, super hypernatural. It was this very exaggerated being a type of darling. And he's this just rich slime ball in this very particular way. And, you know, they are types as well to a lesser degree. But, you know, she's very much the kind of spunky ingenue who wants to break out on her own. Leonardo DiCaprio is very much the not the Brando tortured person. And there's some talk in the history about him and Cameron going back and forth about the fact that was kind of DiCaprio's idea of himself. And Cameron was saying, no, 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 this is a simpler, more optimistic guy, it's not that story. So I saw, I rewatched this whole movie through the lens of kind of it being a throwback in filmmaking style, in acting style, you know, not just that it was a period piece. And I really was awash in a new respect for just the scale of the filmmaking, because as Roxana said, although there are certainly a lot of visual effects in this movie, there are also a ton of practical effects. They notoriously built this yeah. boat. Built a whole studio in, in Mexico. I mean, it's a spectacular feat of technical filmmaking. And, and on that basis alone, I just, I admire it enormously. Enormously. And I was so happy to go back and watch. I could not watch quite all of it because there are actually parts of it that I find so sad that I can't watch no. <laughs> But delighted to watch it again. It's also so funny to think of Leo, because he's always Leo to me, to think of Leo as wanting to do this like tortured, almost like Romeo performance that he had just given in Baz Luhrmann's movie. But he's so much by requirement of the story, softer and cockier. And like there has really become now with time looking upon that Leo performance is like, oh, that was actually something very different from what we had gotten from him so far. And honestly, what we would ever get from him again, because he did yeah. not maintain yeah. romantic, sort of heroic acting. He definitely fled from that, I think. Yeah. So I was nine. We were a strictly no PG-13 movies if you're under 13 household. So I was not seeing this in the theater. But every girl in my class saw it. And 
every day for what was probably only maybe a couple months, but felt like it was a full year, was wearing the Titanic shirt. So Leo Mania was there. And I can understand why he wanted to sort of like run away from that because that that could have been a trap. It could have been, you know, him getting stuck in what, you know, some of the Twilight actors have gotten stuck in. My journey with the film was that, you know, I saw it once it came out on video and I remember my mom letting us watch it because she had seen it so she could like kind of vet (laughs) what parts I could watch and what I couldn't. And I remember loving once the ship hit the iceberg and being bored by everything that came before it. When I was a young girl, I was very much like, oh, the romance sucks, blah, blah, blah. I just like the part where the ship goes down. So I skip it. And whenever it was on TV, I would wait until I could time sort of when the ship was actually hitting it. Because it doesn't hit until about an hour and 38 minutes in. It's a minute 100. It, uh, 100 minutes into a 194-minute movie. So the movie is yeah. more than half over when they hit the iceberg. Yeah, It takes a long time to get there. And so I was kind of like, oh, this movie, this is a, such a simple story. All these things that we've already talked about. And now having rewatched it, I still think the dialogue's terrible. I still think it's very simplistic. But you can't deny the chemistry that these two have. And I also really appreciate the ship hitting the iceberg in a different way. It was so interesting to watch it because what is really, I think, not talked about enough when we're talking about this movie is the way in which all of these politics kind of come forward as people are trying to save their own lives. And so you've got the upstairs, downstairs, like literally upstairs, downstairs concept of like the first class versus the third class and the middle class and how all of them are not treated the same way. Their lives are not treated the same way. And then you also have all these moments of people trying to bargain, bribe, or just becoming resigned to their fate. And the moment that really just hit me the most this time around was when the ship's band is playing Near My God to Thee as the ship is falling. And there's a montage where you see Victor Garber's character, who plays the architect who designed the ship, he's like, I'm just going to go down with the ship. I'm not even going to try. There's all these other people who we may or may not have seen, but didn't have dialogue. So a woman tucking her kids in as the ship is going down. And the old couple. The old couple in bed Mm. together. Yeah. Yeah. What I appreciate about that whole sequence and then the entire ship going down is that even though some of these characters we haven't even seen before, you still feel the moment. They're not just treated as bodies or collateral as they tend to be in these movies about disasters. Like often you just see people falling. You don't even get to see what they look like. You just see them falling. And here, there's just so much time taken to really just like let it sink in of what is happening. You feel like you are there on the ship. I think this is a good movie. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I used to say it's not. And now I think it's like, no, it's a good capital M movie. Yeah. And I wish I'd seen it on a big screen because it deserves to be seen on a big screen. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is related to what Chris was talking about with the screenwriting, with screenwriting not just being dialogue. Right. One of the things that I was struck by watching this again is just how much is going on all over the ship at different times. And you know, both because you can see it in the movie and because if you have read anything about Cameron, you know he's obsessively, he can tell you exactly where everyone Mm -hmm. 
on the ship is at every different individual moment. It's choreographed. You know, he knows exactly what happens to every individual person that you see walking around in the dining room. You know, there are these stories that he would walk up to extras and give them backstories for their characters who are walking around. Despite the fact that, you know, there was some really unhappy reporting about Kate Winslet's experience doing this movie and that Cameron had made comments about her weight and other things that I I do not enjoy looking back on. She's radiant in this. DiCaprio is radiant in this. They're so beautiful. And some of that corny dialogue, although I do absolutely agree it's corny, some of that corny dialogue you can't process anymore. You can no longer hear I'm the king of the world the way it sounded when it wasn't yeah. a joke. Which I think we can all agree was definitely the most scandalous thing ever to happen at the Oscars. <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever. But like some of those lines that are really super corny, paint me like one of your French girls. <laughs> like now they're memes. Now they're jokes. Yeah. They weren't as clunking at the time to me as they are when I watch it now. I also think that you could watch this movie on mute and still understand everything that's mm-hmm. happening because there's such a strong sense of place within the ship. Like we get all these long shots of the long hallways, the different levels. People are organized by class, where you can go and not go. And also just Winslet and DiCaprio. It makes sense to me that they remained friends. And we got the twist on this dynamic in Revolutionary Road, where they play yeah. a very yeah, unhappily yeah. married couple. But there is something between the two of them that even if you were to not listen to the dialogue, it's like, oh, I get it. Like, I get why these two would appeal to each other. And we do still get the they could have both fit on the door <laughs> memes oh, all these years later, right? Like, there is yeah. something still yeah. that we care about in terms of should they have ended up together? And why do we care so much? But we do. This is why I push back so hard. Whenever anyone is like, you know, Cameron is just a technician. He's just a guy who invents cameras and and builds submarines, you know, but he doesn't know anything about storytelling and he doesn't know anything about, look, you cast this movie wrong and you get, look no further than Avatar. Oh God, don't even get me started. Nothing wrong with the special effects in Avatar, right? (laughs) Right. Now he's in this endless cycle of I'm going to make 16 more Avatar (laughs) movies, which seem to get farther away every time you hear about them. Look, and even I don't want that. I mean, no one, like, again, I am, I am this guy's apologist, you know, court appointed attorney, whatever. And even I don't want like nine more avatars. I would like, I I wish you would spend your time doing something else. But I I think when you take perfect casting, combine it with a a brilliant James Horner score um, with all these, these other elements that I think brought people who were who were not me, you know, into the the fold on on Titanic, you get this really spectacular result. Another thing that struck me about this rewatching it for the first time in full in at least over a decade was how feministy it tries to be <laughs> because part of the whole point of this film is that Rose is unhappily betrothed to Billy Zane. The best. Yes, Billy Zane is so great at the smarmy, terrible guy who only cares about himself. But like, it is a kind of feminism that I think we all kind of laugh about today. But I imagine at that time, it felt like a very gung-ho aspect of the film and another draw to it for women in the way that like romance sometimes can be. I will say I kind of, (laughs) I blanched at the moment that I forgot about where she says, to me, it was a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. I was like, ooh, I forgot that was a line of dialogue there. But what, what do you think in general about how this tries to portray a certain kind of feminism and and do you feel as though that was part of what made girls especially 
so drawn to this. I think that was part of the appeal. I mean, I think Cameron loves a strong female character, trademark, you know, <laughs> like I think he really likes this. Women can be resilient and women can be tough and women should talk about what they want. And I think we have demanded more as time has gone by. We want more complexity than that. But I think for the time, it was unique to get some sort of interiority as to what Rose wanted. And she did not want to be like her mother. She did not want to be part of this upper crust, sit around and gossip all day. She wanted to do things. I must have been like 11. And I remember thinking like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like it worked, You know, like it worked on me. Yeah. And I think yeah. that for that core, Leo is beautiful and I can grow up and do what I want and be a success. I think the movie did that well. I mean, I think about the pan of the framed photographs of Rose's life. Yeah. What Cameron is telling us just in these very brief images are very evocative and compelling. We saw that she lived an array of her dreams, and she did on her own terms. So I don't think Cameron does intersectionality well <laughs> at no, all. Not no. at all. Yeah, no. it's a very Disney, like, Jasmine, right. aerial version of feminism. Yeah, Right. Yes. That's what I was going to say, is that the idea that you should marry for love and not position and security is an ancient trope in romance and also a lasting contemporary trope in romance of all kinds. The idea that you should marry for love or that you should not marry for anything other than love is not a fresh idea. And that's where I go back to the kind of magical chemistry that they got out of these actors. Because ultimately, think about the fact that this is not that different of a timeline than the West Side Story timeline, which mm -hmm. usually when people watch it in West Side Story or Romeo and Juliet, they say, how can these people possibly have like two days later, they're like sure that they're meant for each other yeah. forever. With all the other stuff that goes on around the complaints about this movie, I very rarely hear what they know each other for two or three days. That was definitely my complaint. <laughs> Originally, when, yeah. I was, when I was a hardened cynic at nine years old. Way ahead of me. But I think yeah. the chemistry between the characters is such. And they they have this interesting reaction of fascination and respect and sex and fun and excitement. Like, there are some great shots in this movie that really convey how exciting it was to be on this mm -hmm. ship until the iceberg part. Mm -hmm. But there's that shot when she's about to come out to try to jump. And he's lying on his back, looking up at the sky, smoking. To me, it's a real like moment where you realize why he was so excited to be on this ship and being out on the water is so exciting and beautiful. And I think they're able to spin a kind of a spell around these two very young people that makes them feel genuinely connected to each other within a relatively short period of time. And maybe that's the variety of experiences that they have in terms of not just the sex, but the dancing and the, you know, the spitting off the edge of the boat, which I think is so funny. Teach me to ride like a man. And chew tobacco like a man. And spit like a man. What, they didn't teach you that in finishing school? No. Well, come on, I'll show you. Let's do it. What? I'll show you how, come no. on. Jack, oh, come no, on. Jack. You got a lot of people in this who are just height of their powers mm -hmm. kind of delivering, yeah, you know? Yeah. Titanic is one of those movies 
of which there is a category that are people are harder on them in terms of how they remember them if they win Best Picture. Yes. And yeah. if this movie had not won Best Picture, I think people would not have spent as much time as they have trying to explain why it is not actually a good movie when in fact it is a good yeah. movie. Absolutely. I think this movie also has a really fascinating different interpretations as time has passed. I might be butchering this, but I think Celine Siama, who directed Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Petite Maman, I think she gave an interview recently where she talked about the queer legacy of this film and how it's been sort of embraced by different audiences in terms of Rose going for what she wants and taking a more stereotypically masculine role. So it's also interesting to see now these different reads of a film that was very boy and girl fall in love. Like, if you want to discredit that, that's fine. But there are all these different readings of it now as well that time has passed that I think add additional layers to whatever stereotypical reading people might have first gotten out of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to wrap this up because we have not even talked about My Heart Will Go On. We're all going to sing it, right? I am happy to sing it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My Heart Will Go On, yay or nay? Well, My Heart Will Go On to me is the same as I'm the King of the World. You can no longer hear it outside the context of its ubiquity, and therefore it's very hard to judge. But honestly, as a movie theme song, what are you going to say other than huge yeah. success? Like, I don't listen to it, <laughs> but I also don't blame it for the fact that when you hear that, like, tootly penny whistle, everybody kind of goes, <laughs> like, that's <laughs> legacy and ubiquity and popularity. And again, the queen of what she did. Yeah. Yeah. I am on record saying that every movie, certainly every like genre or superhero movie should have a theme song with lyrics. So I, I cannot be anything but pro, pro, pro on uh, My Heart Will Go On. Awesome. Extreme pro. I mean, again, it was like playing in Iran. I was like, how many people understand these lyrics? But it was the hot taxi cab jam. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will go on the record as saying I love this song and I appreciate the fact that it is not just tacked on to the end of the movie. It is, as you were saying, Linda, you hear those reads and they play throughout Mm. the movie. It is a motif. And then when you get to the end of the film and you hear Celine just belting out, yeah, I like, I just feel it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, wait, I have to say one more thing. Yes. If you have not already seen it, if you ever get a chance to see the unbelievably bizarre alternate ending. (laughs) Wait, alternate ending of the movie? I don't think I've ever seen the alternate. What is the alternate ending? I've watched that for the first time this weekend. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. Why have I not heard of this? It's badness is so epic. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Look it up. I think you can find it on YouTube. But all I'm going to say about it is it involves... This very blunt conversation between Gloria Stewart as the old Rose talking to Bill Paxton as the explorer, essentially explaining this very simplistic moral of the story about living every day to the fullest. (laughs) It's shocking. (laughs) Look it up on YouTube. Or you can find it in the extras attached to the movie on iTunes. Okay. Props for self-editing here. I mean, I think it was probably helpful for him to shoot it and then see it and realize this must never be seen. (laughs) Shocking. Wow. I need to find that. And I need to find the Heart of the Ocean necklace that I bought in in an Iranian bazaar and like brought back. It's somewhere in my parents' house. I have to find it. I remember seeing the ads in like the magazines for you to buy the- Like a mail order? A mail order for Heart of the Ocean. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was a time. Those were the days. It was a vibe. 
<laughs> the whole mood. I mean, they they had a big a big investment to Riku. You know, you can't mm-hmm. blame them for trying to. Uh, <laughs> they they were not going to get a sequel to this movie. Yeah, so, it was only uh, the number one movie for four months. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say. We might not ever see anything like it again, even though James Cameron apparently has at least nine, maybe ten, who knows, <laughs> avatars in the works. Well, we want to know what you think about Titanic. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH and on Twitter at PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Roxana Haddadi, Chris Klemek, and Linda Holmes, thanks to you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Mike Katziv and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides the music you're bobbing your head to right now. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Ayesha Harris, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections.